Well, all right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24? For the last few weeks, we have been studying Matthew, chapter 24, which contains a prophetic teaching that Jesus gave his disciples, revealing to them the signs that would precede his second coming to the earth to establish the kingdom of God. And this teaching is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse, or in other words, the teaching that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. And as we've already said, in verses 4 to 14, the Lord Jesus gives his disciples a quick overview of the final seven years before his return, which he divides into two halves. The first three and a half years he refers to in verses 4 to 8 as the beginning of sorrows. And the second three and a half years the Lord mentions in verses 9 to 14 and calls great tribulation. As we have pointed out, this seven-year period of judgment will start out mild, quote-unquote, start out mild but grow ever more intense as the world moves from the beginning of the tribulation period then on into the second half, and it will culminate with the return of Jesus Christ to establish the millennial kingdom. Now, in verses 15 to 28, after Jesus overviews the entire seven years, He zeroes in now, verses 15 to 28, on the last three and a half years to amplify these years, okay? And to give us greater details about this period of great tribulation and what it will mean for the Jewish people primarily, although all believers will be affected. But the focus in Matthew 24 is upon Israel. And so Jesus said in verse 15, Therefore, when you see, not these disciples he's talking to, but the nation in general, a future generation of Jews. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let me stop there. This is something that Paul the Apostle mentions in his second epistle to the Christians living in Thessalonica. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul said, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of God's judgment, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And of course, Paul is talking about the Antichrist who will put his image into the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period and demand to be worshipped as God. Now, we touched on this last week, but when the Antichrist first comes to power as leader of the united one-world global government, which the Bible prophesies is coming, by the way, initially the Antichrist is going to need the religions of the world to bring people together. And because false religion is such a part of this fallen world system. It's no surprise that it will play a major role in the end times. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, That ultimate expression of false religion will be an essential element of Antichrist's final world empire in holding together his military, economic, and political structure. Only religion can unite the world in the most compelling way. Politics, economics, even military force are unable to overcome the world's cultural diversity. Only religion, with its appeal to the supernatural, can transcend the physical, geographical, historical, economic, and cultural barriers to world unity, end quote. 
And so to accomplish his goal of a united one world government and knowing that he has to use religion to accomplish his objectives, he partners himself with another leader, a religious leader the Bible calls the false prophet. The false prophet unites the world in a one world religion that's going to be a true ecumenical church made up of all the religions of the earth. The book of Revelation refers to this world church. And Revelation 17 verse 5 is the great harlot. It's called Mystery Babylon, the mother of all false religions and spiritual abominations on the face of the earth. And as I said initially, the Antichrist tolerates and even promotes this apostate world church. We see in Revelation chapter 17 verse 4 where this harlot is seen riding the beast or the Antichrist. In other words, she is seated on the beast steering and controlling the beast as a rider would sit on a horse steering and dominating that horse. And so the beast, which is the Antichrist, during the first half of the tribulation period allows himself to be controlled by the harlot, the world church, until he gains enough power over the people of the world. And then, folks, he will need her no longer. And as we said last week, the event that really solidifies his power in the hearts of the people of this world is when somebody tries to assassinate him and he appears to be dead, but then miraculously comes back to life. Now, as I said last week, I don't believe he's really dead. I don't think Satan has the power over life and death. But Satan is a master deceiver. And so he convinces the world that this guy is dead. And then suddenly, miraculously, he rises from the dead. When that happens, the people of this world will then begin to worship the Antichrist as a god. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, we read, The whole world marveled at this miracle, that the Antichrist was raised from the dead, and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon. That's a term for Satan, if you can imagine. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power. And they also worship the beast, saying, Who is as great as the beast, as the Antichrist? They exclaimed, Who is able to fight or make war against him? And now, the Antichrist, having solidified his power over the people of the world, replaces this ecumenical world church with his own church, a church made up of those who worship him. At this point, as we studied last week, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple, and stops the sacrifices and offerings to the God of Israel, who is the true and living God, and places an image of himself. What this image is, we're not sure. We'll talk about what it might be in a moment. But he places an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. Now, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. This is what Paul alluded to in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. He says, The Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that at one point, we know right here in Matthew 24 verse 15, middle, middle of the, of the seven-year period, so that at one point he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The false prophet, who initially led the world ecumenical church, now outlaws that church and destroys it and leads the world in the worship of the Antichrist. I will have you turn to this one, Revelation 13. And I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. 
Starting in verse 12, Revelation 13, verse 12. And he, the false prophet, required all the earth and his people to worship the first beast of the Antichrist, whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to the earth from the sky while everyone was watching. The false prophet is going to have the same supernatural powers the Antichrist has. Verse 14, And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast. The word in the Greek is image. We don't know what it is. It might be a statue. But he ordered the people of the world to make a great statue of the first beast, of the Antichrist, who was fatally wounded and came back to life. He was then permitted to give life, interesting, to this statue, so that it, the statue, could speak. And believe me, folks, this is not going to be Disneyland stuff. Everyone knows sophisticated robots. This is not going to be that, all right? This is going to be something inanimate that suddenly becomes animate. Something that was not alive, who now has got life. And this statue, who has been made alive, then begins to command everybody. The statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. Folks, listen to me. There is something about this new worldwide spirituality anchored in the worship of the Antichrist that you need to understand. In fact, it may even give insight into this statue, quote-unquote, that the Antichrist and false prophet give life to. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the supernatural power the Antichrist will have, how he uses it to get people to worship him, and even gives us some insight, I believe, into the message that the Antichrist preaches to those who follow him. I'm reading out of 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 9, where Paul says, The coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, okay? This guy's going to have the power to work real miracles. They're called lying miracles. Why? Because they're going to deceive people into embracing false doctrine. I mean, they're real miracles. But the end result is to not point them to the true God, is to point them to the dragon, the devil, who has empowered the Antichrist as the world's Messiah, that the Antichrist is the true Messiah of the world. So the miracles will deceive people into believing the wrong things. Verse 10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So the people of this world who rejected God's truth, the gospel, and the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, because they rejected the truth, God says now you're going to be susceptible to the devil's lies. And verse 11 says, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. What is this? lie. And notice he doesn't say a lie. Paul refers to it as the lie, a very specific lie. Well, Paul mentions it again in Romans chapter 1. If you turn there, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Now he's talking about the wrath of God and it could be a reference to the tribulation period, where God is pouring his wrath out in this world. But look at the whole context here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that the people of this world are without excuse who claim there is no God. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. Interesting. Made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, listen, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And I want you to notice how Paul connects the lie with false worship. Keep that in mind. What is this lie? Well, I believe it's the same basic lie that Satan deceived Eve with in the Garden of Eden. That if she ate the forbidden fruit, her eyes would be opened. In other words, she would achieve enlightenment and become like God. Or in other words, ascend to Godhood. So the very lie that caused the human race to fall in the beginning, I believe, is going to be the ultimate deception that Satan is going to use against the human race in the end. And I believe that the Antichrist religion will be rooted in the belief that mankind can become, listen, a super race of God beings who will live forever on the earth. I mean, this has been the goal of Hinduism, Mormonism, the New Age movement, and many others who believe that we are really God. There's no God outside of us. We're really God. The problem is that we just don't realize it. We need to be enlightened. And if we can get enough people in the world to be enlightened at the same time, we will reach a critical mass of consciousness that will catapult the human race a quantum leap will happen in the evolutionary process and the human race will become as God. We will ascend to Godhood. Remember the statue or the image that the Antichrist and false prophet put into the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, a statue that they have power to give life to. Could this be some kind of machine or computer or even robot that they are able to infuse, listen, with human consciousness and intelligence? And if so, could this be the prototype of a super race that will have incredible power and intelligence, a race of people that would be the perfect combination of machine and human consciousness who will live forever as gods upon the earth? I mean, could this be the message the Antichrist will preach to the people of this world and why they so enthusiastically follow him and destroy all those who oppose him? Now, does this sound far-fetched? If you think so, I'd like to read you from an article that came out two weeks ago, two weeks ago, written by Michael Snyder, entitled Transhumanists, Superhuman Powers and Life Extension Technologies Will Allow Us to Become Like God. Here's what the article says, and I quote, If you could merge your current mind and body with technology that would give you superhuman powers and allow you to live forever, would you do it? This is essentially what the transhumanism movement is seeking to accomplish. Transhumanists envision a day when technology will allow humanity to become so advanced that sickness, disease, poverty, and war will essentially be eradicated. So we'll have a new world order, a beautiful paradise to live in. They believe that merging with machines will permit us to become trillions of times more intelligent than we are today. And they also believe that radical life extension technologies 
will make it possible for humanity to actually achieve immortality. Many transhumanists are convinced that such a world can be achieved within their lifetimes. They point to Moore's law and to the fact that technology already appears to be growing at an exponential rate. As the technology curve continues to steepen, transhumanists believe that our world will rapidly become transformed into a place that would be unrecognizable to us today. Just a few decades from now, <laughs> I don't think it's going to take that long, transhumanists believe that superhuman powers and extremely advanced life extension technologies will allow them to essentially become like gods. The key moment that most transhumanists are looking forward to is known as the singularity. This is the moment when artificial intelligence will actually surpass human intelligence and a massive technological chain reaction will be triggered. At that time, most transhumanists believe that biological intelligence will merge with non-biological intelligence and humanity will become vastly more intelligent than it is today. During this transition, society will be fundamentally transformed. After the singularity occurs, it is predicted that vast changes will sweep through society, changes so drastic that they are nearly inconceivable at the present time. Experts in the movement say that after the singularity, indefinite human life extension will rapidly become the norm. Many scientists working in the field are particularly interested in the concept of achieving immortality. To most people, the idea of achieving immortality in our decaying physical bodies would sound absolutely ridiculous. But transhumanists are very serious about this. <laughs> Listen, one way they are seeking to accomplish this is by searching for a method that will enable them to store the human mind on a computer. If your entire consciousness could be uploaded into a computer, it could conceivably later be downloaded into a futuristic avatar of some sort once the technology has been developed. In a recent article by Andrew Smart, he gives a little caveat. He suggests that these enhancements, quote-unquote, could just turn the human race into better slaves. Yes, slaves of the Antichrist doing his bidding and killing his enemies. Snyder said, could it be that we've been tricked into pouring our innovative energy into making ourselves better slaves? If the digital elite achieves its dream of a perfect union with machines, what becomes of the rest of us who either can't afford this cyborgification or who actually enjoy life as a regular human being? <laughs> and I suggest that it will lead to mass genocide of those who refuse to assimilate into this collective mindset on this issue with the worship of the Antichrist as its core ideology. Snyder goes on, but transhumanists are not really concerned about such matters. They insist that we will become so intelligent that we will easily figure out the solutions to such social issues. Yes, most transhumanists concede there will be bumps on the road to utopia, but they argue that it would be foolish not to take control of our own evolution. They believe that we can use science and technology to guide the evolution of society and that this will create a far better world than we have today. Isn't that what Hitler tried to do? Never works out well, by the way. The following is what one participant stated at a recent conference about transhumanism and religion. Quoting this speaker, he said, and I quote, Transhumanism is a thrust towards transcendence. It is not classical mysticism, but seeks a temporal transcendence. The driving force behind this is evolution. What is reality? Reality is evolution, he says. 
It has a direction from the simple to the complex. The most complex outcome is intelligence. Thus, evolution is aimed at intelligence, or enlightenment is the idea. We should thus have a will to evolve. We have a moral responsibility to increase evolution and to do so by continually striving to expand our abilities throughout life by acting in harmony with the evolutionary process. Doesn't that mean killing the weak so the strong can survive? Science and technology move us toward utopia. One of the most exciting things about transhumanism is that all will be fixed. Snyder goes on to say, that all sounds so alluring. I mean, after all, who, who wouldn't want to live in a utopia where everything that is currently wrong with our planet has been fixed, quote-unquote? But transhumanists don't just stop there. They believe that eventually we will possess such superhuman powers and will enjoy such radical life extension technologies that we will essentially be like God. Transhumanist Mark Pesci openly states that he believes that transhumanism will allow us to become gods. He said, and I quote, Men die, planets die, even stars die. We all know this. Because we know it, we seek something more, a transcendence of transience, translation to the incorruptible form, an escape, if you will, a stop to the wheel. We seek, therefore, to bless ourselves with perfect knowledge and perfect will, to become as gods, to take the universe in hand and transform it into our image for our own delight. As it is on earth, so it shall be in the heavens. And by the way, that's a total New Age statement. There's a lot of New Age thinking that's going to go into this whole thing. The inevitable result of incredible improbability is the arrow of evolution is leading us into transhumanism, an apotheosis to reason, salvation, listen, attained by our good works, end quote. To finish the article, and what transhumanist Dr. Richard Seed has to say about all of this is quite frightening. Dr. Seed warns of warfare if anyone tries to prevent him from becoming a god. I'm worried about those people at this time who refuse to become gods themselves. Gods in this new world order, I believe they're going to be exterminated in the name of worldwide unity. So if that's true, and I'm not saying that's what the Bible is actually saying is going to happen. I just think it's very interesting. I, I wouldn't be surprised. But if it is true, maybe now we can understand in a greater way how great an abomination this thing is that the Antichrist places in the Holy of Holies. Maybe a possible symbol for the deification of the human race, a prototype of what all human beings can become under the leading of the Antichrist, where man worships himself as God in defiance of the first and greatest commandment of the Decalogue, out of Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 5 where God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And yet Paul the Apostle, I believe, has prophesied that very thing. In Romans chapter 1, again, verses 22 to 25, professing to be wise, the people of this world, so smart, we're going to be so intelligent, we won't have to worry about social issues, we'll figure it all out. Think again. Paul says, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made 
like corruptible man and exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There is coming a day when man will do what he's always wanted to do, rule over his own life with impunity. There is coming a day when man is going to believe in his own mind he has achieved the very thing he has always wanted to achieve, Godhood. Where he will stop worshiping the, the true creator, which is happening now all over the place anyways, but will instead focus his attention of worship on the creature. And I believe man is going to be the ultimate creature of this new system of worship. The lie, the deification of man, coupled with worship, Romans chapter 1, we see it coming. We see it coming. All right, back in Matthew chapter 24. Let me read to you verses 15 through where we stopped last week, just so you get the flavor. Therefore, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, now we get a better understanding of what he's talking about. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Here's what we pick it up from last week. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible. Even the elect, see, I have told you beforehand. As you study this final seven-year period, whether it's in the Gospels or in the Epistles, and especially in the book of Revelation, you will see over and over again the one thing that's repeated time in and time out is it will be a period of great worldwide spiritual deception. We see it here right in this chapter. Let me read to you the verses. In chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, And Jesus said to, to them, Take heed that no one, what? Deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ, false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This is not talking about the church. It's talking about Israel. We'll talk about that more next time. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. It all dovetails with what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. He said, the coming of the Antichrist is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. It seems that the Antichrist is going is to be able to empower his spokesmen. False Christ and false prophets that spread out over the world, don't forget now, God will have his true witnesses that will spread out all over the world. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists will save millions and millions who will spread out all over the world. But as, while they're preaching truth and the enemy's pick, the Antichrist is picking them off, off like flies, his false ministers, the ministers of unrighteousness and deception, false Christ and false prophets, will spread out and they will be preaching lies in the Antichrist's name. 
but he will be able to give them the ability to work miracles as they preach the Antichrist false doctrine. Verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses for years have predicted the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth. I mean, numerous times. And when he didn't come back physically, then they began to claim, well, he did come back quietly and invisibly into a secret inner room. Jesus, don't fall for that. (laughs) I'm warning you. People are going to come saying those kind of things. Don't fall for that. He said, when I come, I won't come in secret. I will light up the sky with my second coming glory and every eye will see me. You're not going to mistake me. And what is the first thing, as we bring this to a close, what is the first thing Jesus is going to do when he comes to the earth? All right? Before he establishes his kingdom, I'll have you turn to one more scripture. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. John said, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, the crowns of a king, the Greek says. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's the church, guys. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads on the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of all who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. What is this a reference to? When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and you got to read Revelation, when he comes at his second coming, the armies of the Antichrist gather together to go against the Lord in the valley of Megiddo. They gather with their tanks and surface-to-air missiles and Apache helicopters and whatever else they got. They're going to go to war against God because earlier they said, who was like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? We can't lose. This guy's invincible. He dies and comes back to life. So they're totally enamored with this guy, totally deceived into thinking he can lead them in a revolt against God like the devil thought he could lead his angels in a revolt against God and win. Ultimate deception. And they gather in the valley of Megiddo for a battle which never happens because he comes and wipes them out with the sword that proceeds from his mouth. The word that created the whole universe speaks a word and wipes them out. And the birds come and feed on their flesh. And that, guys, is what I believe Matthew 24, verse 28 is all about. For wherever the carcass is, the eagles, and I think it's a reference to vultures, not eagles. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will be gathered together talking about this great carnage that will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. And before he does, the first order of business is to wipe out the usurpers, to wipe out the rebels who refuse to bow to his lordship. 
they're going to be removed. We'll talk about that more next week. They will be removed from the earth. Now, I see some new faces. And uh, I know that some of you may be thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself in here today? What is this? All right, look, I know this has been pretty heavy, okay? And maybe right now some of you are going, man, what? I don't know what this guy's talking about. You know, what is all this? Let me say, if you're a little confused and, and all, you're not alone. Uh, let me just relate to you a true story that happened last night, all right? As Cindy and I were invited to uh, the reception, uh, Mike and Penny Nuxall's son Alexander got married. And so right in the area of the reception, we were able to go, and we sat at a table with a very nice couple, very friendly, began to talk to us about uh, what we did for a living and so on and so forth. And he explained that he was the choir director of his church, a Catholic church in the area where this couple got married earlier in the day, and uh, and all. And then he asked me what I did for a living. I said, I was a pastor, okay? And, uh, oh, that's, you know, really neat, you know, and what church? And I told him the church, you know. And then after a few minutes, he asked me this question. He said, so... What are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, do you really want to know? Because, you know, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I mean, I know what the homilies usually are. It's love of God, helping the poor, good stuff. And I'm thinking he said, you know, when he said, what are you preaching on Sunday? I'm sure he was thinking, I'm going to talk about the love of God, helping the poor, doing something like that. I looked him in the eyes and said, are you ready for this? Sure. Okay, well, I'm preaching on the abomination of desolation that the Antichrist is going to put in the Holy of Holies and the Rebuild Temple in Jerusalem, leading the whole world into a system of false worship culminating in the return of Jesus Christ to the planet Earth. As God is my witness, that's exactly what I told him. I wish I had a picture of the looks on their faces. It was a cross between shock and horror. And then I gently put my hand on his shoulder and said, would you like a copy? <laughs> they were traumatized. I mean, they couldn't even talk. So look, if you're feeling a little traumatized by the graphic nature of what we just talked about, okay, and maybe you came here thinking just a nice little uplifting message would be so nice. Like I told this gentleman, I do talk on uplifting messages. I mean, I do give those. But when you're going verse by verse, you just take whatever is there. And so that's where we are, and that's what I'm teaching on. But here's the thing, guys, and I'll close with this. Ever since the Garden of Eden, man has wanted to be God. And that's what got us into the mess we are in right now. That's why the world is in such a terrible place. It's because man has tried to be God. And because of it, it's going to culminate in the worship of the Antichrist, which I believe is a deification of mankind, where man rejects the worship of the Creator and instead worships himself as God. Now, God will judge this world for that. But here's the beautiful thing. You don't have to be judged with the wicked. If you bow the knee right now to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I don't want to be God. I can't even run my own life, let alone try to run the world. But Lord, listen, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. 
I want you to be my God. I want you to control my life. I bow the knee to your lordship. I am your slave who will do whatever you tell me to do. The Lord embraces you as his child and promises you that someday, after the world is judged, you will come back with him to this world to establish a new kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, of love and joy and peace, where you can walk the streets at night and not be afraid, where the Bible says every man will sit under his own fig tree unafraid, where people will not study war anymore, but instead take their swords and spears, beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks, and we will live in an agrarian society where there is justice and there is peace because the Prince of Peace will be on the throne reigning visibly from Jerusalem. Now, if that appeals to you, then I suggest today before any more time passes, you repent of your sins and give your hearts to Jesus Christ because this world, guys, is coming to an end. Now, when I say this world, this present world system, the world will continue on forever in a different state. At one point, the Lord will recreate the heavens and the earth, create a new city called New Jerusalem where we're all going to live in the eternal state. But as you look around, things are rapidly coming to the conclusion the Bible has predicted for a long time. And so we're living in exciting times if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The age of man's evil rule is just about over. And the new age of Christ's righteous reign is about to begin. And so let's all make sure that we are ready when he returns to be a part of that kingdom. Amen?